Now it's probably been said a million times, we live in interesting times. When I actually went to university, you actually had to do some work if you wanted to pass a course. But now I understand, with all the courses moved online during COVID, some students at some universities are being guaranteed non-graded passes. Now I don't want to sound like I'm taking a swipe at the universities at this point, it's great for them to show a bit of compassion. But I want you to imagine that if they were offering not a pass, but a universal high distinction, and not just an HD, 100%. If you were a student, how much work would you do? Honestly. Now, there's a Christian version of this that says that if we are saved by grace, if we are declared righteous because of the perfect performance of Jesus, everything that he has done and nothing of ours in salvation, 100% on our life transcript because Jesus aced the exam. Once we've prayed the prayer, once we've come to Christ, we should just kick back and relax. We should wait for heaven. The life of obedience, the life of discipleship is an optional extra for all those spiritual nerds who like such things. Now, some Christians have even suggested that to encourage obedience actually undermines grace. And so by no means should you tell a Christian that they should do anything. Now, it probably doesn't surprise you that this is totally not the biblical picture. And it's definitely not the impression that we get of Paul from our passage this morning. We're going to investigate the nature of the Christian life from the passage that Colin started to speak to us from, from Philippians 3 last week. And we're going to finish that off. And Lauren is going to read that for us now. Hello everybody, uh, I am Lauren, in case you don't remember, haven't seen my face in a while, um, and I'm going to be doing the Bible reading for today, and we are reading from Philippians 3 verses 7 to 16. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may in Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal of to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 
All of us, then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Thanks, Lauren. Now, in our passage this morning, Paul uses a particular image, that of a journey, particularly a race, and the destination, the goal, the prize that waits at the end. Now, you've probably heard the slogan, it's all about the journey, not about the destination. But for Christians, it's actually both. It is about the journey, but it's ultimately the destination that shapes the journey and how we travel. So we've got three points this morning. The destination, the journey, and wisdom for the road. Now, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, eyes on the prize. And this is what Paul models and teaches. He is a man completely focused on the destination. And for Paul, the destination is not a place. That may surprise you because Paul doesn't see that our journey of life is about getting to heaven. For him, the destination is actually a person. Now, the Christian gospel, Paul teaches, is not primarily about getting saved. Getting saved has brought him into a relationship with God, and this is the destination. Now, we must acknowledge that Christian lingo for a long time has spoken about getting to heaven. So let me ask you, why do you want to go there? Well, there are lots of answers that you might give. Well, the other option isn't particularly attractive. Oh, the idea of no more pain, sickness of evil sounds great. The amazing beauty of the new creation. I want to be reunited with loved ones. These are great reasons, but if that is all we have, may I suggest that this is quite a self-centered view of heaven? Why? Well, it focuses on the gifts, not on the giver. Those things are true, but for Paul, the ultimate goal is to be with God, Father, Son and Spirit. This is what the Christian gospel offers us. John Piper captures this perfectly. He writes that the gospel is not a way to get to people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. So we need to see that it's fundamentally a relationship. And like the wedding day is only day one of a marriage, getting saved is only the start of our life with God. Paul has been brought into relationship with God and all the years that he has been a Christian, all the years that he has served and known Christ, he realizes he has just scratched the surface of knowing God and he wants more. That's what he's longing for. So in verse 8, he speaks of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ. 
the destination for Paul and for us is the person of Jesus Christ. His drive to come to the end, the resurrection of the dead that he mentions in verse 11, is a drive that he might know Christ fully. It drives the ambition of his life. Now this echoes Jesus' teaching in John 17 verse 3, where Jesus prays, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Christianity is a relationship. The destination is a person. And for Paul, he will not let get anything get in the way. His desire that he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ, it links back to the declaration in verse 8 where he says, I consider everything a loss. Not just of no use, but potentially a liability. This is amazing because he considers these great things, his Jewish heritage, his religious performance. Everything is a loss because he knows that if he tries to build his own righteousness, his own standing before God by using these things, it will block him from knowing Christ. Let me illustrate. Now, you might love ice cream. You might have a fridge of all your favorite flavors. Maybe you even have a dedicated ice cream fridge. But if your vision the thing that has captured your heart at this time is to get your beach body back for summer, then that fridge of delectable delights is a total liability. It's not just useless, but it is a very real threat, a real and present danger to achieving your goal. This is the temptation for us. We might grasp the doctrine of justification by faith with our heads, but in our hearts, we're still drawn to look to our works, our sincerity, our past experience of conversion, our, reli our religious performance, or the relative infrequency of our conscious, willful disobedience. We look there for our sense of assurance and rest. And so our achievements may actually be a disadvantage. And our hearts want to smuggle those things back in. We love works. It gives us a sense of control. We want to smuggle them back in, saved by grace, but in essence, we live by works. And Paul knows this will block joy in Christ because it actually takes away from his grace. Paul has eyes on the prize. He is fixated on the destination, the fullness of his relationship with Christ that will come when the dead are resurrected, when sin and evil are destroyed and the new creation comes in all its fullness. Paul elsewhere tells us that the spirit acts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. We have just a glimpse. So that's the destination. Let's now consider the journey. Now, the first thing to say about the journey, obviously, it's not a physical journey. So even though Paul uses the image of a journey or a race, 
The journey is actually the process of becoming more and more like Christ. Another word the Bible uses for this is sanctification. And I want to spend a moment explaining this idea. Before we jump to sanctification, let me briefly recap last week's sermon on justification. The start of the Christian life, humanly speaking, is conversion. When an individual turns from sin and turns to God with repentance and faith in response to the gospel. And it is this moment when we are justified, declared right to be to be right with God. It's an event. It happens only once. And it is at that point where we get Christ's perfect record and our sin is given to him with its just penalty. It's this dual exchange. And justification, it's God's work for us, which we receive by faith. So Philippians 3 verse 9 says it beautifully. Paul speaks of a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, where justification is an event, a once-off thing, sanctification is a lifelong process. It starts at conversion and it's God working in us in order to transform us into the likeness of Christ. It's a cooperative effort between our regenerated heart and mind and will and God himself. God's work comes first before any action on our part and his work both inspires and empowers our work. We work because he is working. And all the working out of our salvation on our part is a response. It's kind of like an old style dance. Jesus has come up and he has asked us to dance. We respond, following his lead as he guides us on the dance floor of life. This is sanctification in a nutshell. So what light does Paul shed on the journey of sanctification? Now I've got five P's to help us remember. Power, pain, perspective, perseverance and promise. Now in verse 10, Paul says he wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection. Now this sounds pretty awesome, like laser beam eyes like Captain Marvel. Well, probably not. The power that he's speaking of, the power of the resurrection, is the work of the Holy Spirit applying the victory of Christ over sin in the life of the believer. On the cross, Christ paid the penalty for sin and he broke its power. The resurrection declares his victory over sin, death and evil and is the first fruits of the new creation. Resurrection power is at work in our lives as the Spirit works the fruit of that victory into us, transforming us into Christ's image. The Spirit is the sanctifier. So how do we get this power? Ask for it. Prayerful dependence. Paul tells us that his power is made perfect in weakness. More on this in a few weeks. 
Now our second P is pain. We can so easily forget that Jesus called us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily and follow him. People carrying the cross were on their way to execution. It's a symbol of shame and suffering and death. And the weird thing is that Paul wants it. He wants to share Christ's suffering and become like him in his death. So what's he getting at? Now, Paul knows the journey's not easy. Jesus calls us to come and die. To live for him, to follow him, will mean suffering. But that suffering is not incidental. It's not meaningless. Nor is it just random. Suffering is part of the way that God transforms us into the image of Christ. Peter picks this up when he writes, The suffering refines our faith like gold in a furnace. God is at work in all things, Romans 8 teaches us. That's all things for the good of those who love him. The Puritan pastor, Jeremiah Burroughs, wrote about this. He said, The truth is that the afflictions of God's people come from the same eternal love as Jesus Christ came from. All God's strokes are strokes of love and mercy. All God's ways are mercy and truth to those who fear him and love him. So Paul knows to share Christ's suffering is to follow our Saviour's footsteps, be transformed into his likeness, lead us into glory. Now a third P, perspective. Paul always has the goal in sight. The journey is not irrelevant, but the goal is to be face to face with Christ at the end. If you think about the destination, it actually transforms the journey. If you're traveling overseas for a holiday, you know, remember when we might have done that. The journey is, it's a pain. Maybe 24, 36 or even 48 hours in transit. Changing planes, hanging around in, in the airports. If it was all about the journey, who would do it? But it is the destination that makes it worthwhile. Paul has the end in sight. In verse 11, he speaks of somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. It's odd language. It sounds that like he's not confident that he'll get there. But this is not doubt. It's gracious humility. Paul does have assurance. Verse, one, uh, verse 6 of chapter 1. The one who began a good work will bring it to completion on the day of, good, of Christ Jesus. But he, it doesn't make him complacent. He knows that his salvation rests on Christ. He's confident, but never presumptuous. So he writes, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal. He says in verse 13 that he does not consider himself yet to, take, to have taken hold of it. So fourthly, this clear vision of the end enables him to persevere. It enables him to avoid distraction, to keep going through discouragement. Like when you're climbing a mountain, 
when you can see the view stretching out as you climb and then you see the peak ahead, you see the destination, it motivates us. How good is this going to be? It inspires perseverance to keep going. Paul presses towards the goal. Now he uses metaphorical language. It's a word picture. What does it actually concretely look like? Well, it's, it's longing to know Christ better. It's spending time in his word. It's striving to love Christ more. It's worshipping him and adoring him. It's working to become more like Christ. It's daily turning from sin and turning to Christ with repentance and faith. It's seeking to love what Christ loves, to serve God, his people and his world. Paul has been going for decades. The gospel's been proclaimed. Who knows how many people converted? Churches planted throughout the Roman Empire. Other people raised up into ministry. Visions of heaven opened before him. Surely he's arrived. He can kick back and relax, put his feet up. Ride the momentum into the shore. No. He writes, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize. Lastly, there's promise. For all the emphasis Paul places on his action and the somewhat tentative language he uses, there's a note of assurance threading through this passage. Look at verse 12. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Paul is confident. God has called him upward. He's called him heavenward for this. He knows that the one who began a good work will carry it on to completion. Paul has confidence that amid the power and the pain the perseverance and the perspective that the promise of God holds true. He's responding to what God has done for him in the gospel. God has taken the initiative. He has justified him. All Paul's striving and straining, all his pressing on is a response to Christ's finished work. Sanctification flows from justification. God's love, his mercy and grace, inspires our effort. Grace doesn't make us lazy, it makes us zealous. Love motivates us like nothing else can. Because Paul needs to add absolutely zero to his salvation, it's all done for him at the cross, that motivates him to strive all the more. Because he's got 100% Christ's perfect work, he turns up to every lecture, he does every assignment, he strives not to earn the grade, but because the grade is his. Now this might sound a bit counterintuitive, a bit against the grain, but the problem here is not the striving, but the reason behind the striving. That's what we get wrong. The Christian author Dallas Willard helpfully explains. He writes, Grace is not 
opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. If we do things to earn, we're expecting to get something in return. But justification teaches us that everything is ours as a free gift. And now a few concluding words, some wisdom from Paul for the road. Number one, don't look back. Paul speaks of forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Keep your eyes fixed on the destination, on the one with whom we will come face to face, on Christ our brother and his father who is our father the Lord Almighty. If we fix our eyes on ourselves, we can either fall into despair or pride. Despair as we see our missteps, our distractions, our sidetracks. We say to ourselves, have we only come this far? Or pride when we think, wow, look how far I've come. Paul tells us, not to look back. We need to cultivate a godly forgetfulness because our past failures and our past successes, they don't count. And so Paul says, don't focus on them. This doesn't mean that we don't learn from them, learn from the past, but simply that our past doesn't count. What Christ has done for us is what counts. So don't look back. Second, in verse 15, Paul speaks of those who are mature. Now, maturity will give us a sober understanding of the Christian life. It's a view that encompasses all of our P's, all of what Paul is teaching here. The power as well as the pain. The perspective, the, the vision of Christ at the end, as well as the perseverance that is necessary to get there. And it will rest on God's promise. Often, growing in Christ-likeness actually means that we are more aware of our sin, our weakness and our shortcoming. But with maturity also comes a growing understanding of God's grace. And lastly, Paul tells us that we are to press on. In verse 16, he writes... Let us all live up to what we have already attained. Resting our hearts in the wonders of God's grace to us, Paul teaches us to strive to reflect more and more the beauty and holiness of our Saviour. He encourages us to press on, not to turn back, not to get distracted, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of us. Let's keep going.